Hello and welcome to Coffee Meet with Algamy Consulting and me, your host, Chris New. Today's podcast is the third in our series of podcasts titled Pathway to Freedom. As always, we aim to provide insight from key players of the wealth and asset management industry. Today's topic uh, is the personalization of investment funds. Putting the eye in investments, the adoption of sustainability models in the investment management industry has had an impact on the development of bespoke portfolios. Is this a new model of asset and wealth management designed for market segments that were not serviced previously? Is the industry ready for this challenge? Today, we are very lucky to be joined by two industry thought leaders who are well positioned to discuss their views on this subject. Firstly, Carolina Mino Paloello, good morning, and Phoebe Stone. Good morning, Phoebe. Good morning, Chris. Carolina is participating on a personal basis. She was Global Head of Product, Market Solutions and Quant at Schroeder's. And prior to that, I spent periods at Goldman Sachs Asset Management and Lombard O Investment Managers, where she was a limited partner. Her background is a quant. She's backed up by a PhD in finance from London Business School and has been deeply involved in sustainability since 2013, whereas Schroeder, she's also involved in digital transformation projects, including blockchain infrastructure and the working with the operations technology teams there. Equally impressive, Phoebe, um, you've become partner and head of sustainable investing at LGT Investor, having joined there from Coots in 2014. Phoebe is a partner and leads their sustainability proposition and is responsible for sustainable mandates, as well as ESG integration uh, and stewardship activities. So before we kick off into the, the main body of our personalization discussion, I've got a fun question for you. We're talking about bespoke tailoring of funds and asset management, which brings me to tailoring itself and uh, fashion faux pas. I've had a number in the city. I guess my most embarrassing moment was walking along in front of a client when a senior uh, female partner whispered in my ear that you've got a big hole in the back of your trousers. What is your worst fashion faux pas? I'll let you think about that one and we'll pick it up at the end. So perhaps without further ado... Uh, Maybe you can give me your elevator pitch about your journey in the industry. We'll start with you, Carolina, and what it is you're passionate about. Thank you, Chris. Actually, I would start by saying that, as you mentioned, I'm a quant at heart. And at the end of the day, I react to two things. One is data, what the data is telling us. And the other one is clients, what the clients are asking for, what they're telling us. And so it is true that over the last five years, I've been very intrigued and captured by sustainability. And the reason for that is because over that period, the data started to show evidence that sustainability is a risk dimensions, that regulations, changes in in consumer patterns are effectively impacting the business model of companies. And in addition to that, clients are asking for uh, sustainable portfolios. Today, we are at a turning point and sustainability is a given. Asset managers need to deliver or understand the sustainability risk. But the clients are starting to ask for impact. They want to know what is the impact that their portfolios have on society. And this is very relevant to what matters to uh, to them most. So it's not dissimilar to what happened 20 years ago with risk. You have seen the development of risk models, quantitative techniques, and risk became the second dimensions along returns, but today we are witnessing the beginning of impact. So I guess, Caroline, when you first got in, you were always interested in data, quant, that's a mathematical driver, and you talk about risk there. Is that what has always led you through these different themes, whether they are, you know, firstly driven by risk and then into sustainability? I I think it's a very fair way. There's got to be a risk, there's got to be an evidence that something matters. And I think this is very interrelated 
to the fact that clients are asking for something different. And the two things are not uh, independent. They are very intercorrelated. What matters to clients is actually becoming a risk dimension. And so for me, the two perspectives being aligned made it particularly interesting. And in addition, the question is how asset manager can capture that, in particular with the new technologies, with the, the yep. digital transformations. Phoebe, in terms of your career, how you, the secret of your success would be a good thing to share with our listeners, but also as a, a senior leader for a younger generation, what is it that got you into financial markets? Why did you choose financial markets when perhaps other people were choosing big tech? I think I'm a little bit older than I look, Chris. When <laughs> I was entering the market, big tech definitely wasn't really uh, in existence in the way that it is today. For me, as a very personal journey, it was all about role models. Um, when I was 16, I did um, an internship with a farm pharmaceutical fund manager at Alliance Burn. She um, since moved on to another asset manager. But I was completely fascinated by her role, her position, being a fund manager and, and working with clients, uh, working with the businesses and the companies that, that she was looking at and analyzing for her fund. And then interestingly, also working with a third party in her case, which was the, the pharmaceutical and the medical sector and getting their views of the businesses. So that ignited a fire within me to, to work in the asset management industry. And from that age, I was then curating my CV, my A-level choices and university choices to, to effectively get a job like hers. So that we end up today with me not being a fund manager, but, but running sustainable portfolios. And I think that's come as part of um, a greater understanding that gained over the last decade of running client money, which is a broader understanding of what wealth means to individuals. I think even 10 years ago, wealth was about sort of financial objectives when it comes to wealth management and, and portfolio management. Mm. Now there's another layer to it and the objectives that individuals have, not only meeting those financial objectives, but, but how are you meeting those financial objectives? Backing businesses, not just for financial return, but as effectively a, a vote for the kind of world that you want to live in and the kind of world that you want to leave behind. And that's been a really dramatic shift that we've seen take place over the last five years. So mass personalization, what does that mean to you when we create mass personalization with digital sort of technologies? I think, Chris, uh, before we go into this detail in discussions, we need to define what we mean by personalizations, because at the end of the day, this is not a new term, as you are mentioning. If you look at institutional clients, they have been asking for bespoke. They have been asking for tailoring for a long time. So that is happening. And actually, also individuals have been increasingly asking for what we could call mass customizations, more personalized asset allocations, where there's also an opportunity to tailor it to the life cycle of each investors. But what I would like to discuss today, which I think is linking a number of topics where there is also a huge opportunity for the asset management, is personalization around these impact dimensions that Phoebe are talking about, this new outcome that is important to, to clients, where investors increasingly are looking at the impact that they can have on society. And this is very personal. This It's very different from a client to another. And there's not really a framework today. The closest things that you can have is the UN that in 2015 uh, came up with the um, Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 SDGs. At the end of the day, the two most important is helping climate and really helping the, the social challenges. So let me maybe for the, for the listener give you an example of what I'm referring to. If we were to have three portfolios, all with the same risk and return, but different impact, you could have different universes. One, a portfolio that contribute to the uh, climate challenges, help mitigate climate by investing in uh, solar and, uh, and wind companies. 
You could have another one that invests in uh, the social dimensions and look at companies that have only diverse um, workforces. And you could have, of course, a portfolio that doesn't have impact or actually has negative impact. And I think what is important is that every investor is different. Actually, some clients may not yet be interested, but of course, this is coming up more and more and we shouldn't forget the millennials starting to have a bigger voice. And so it's an opportunity for the asset manager to prepare for giving this choice and allowing for that increased dimension of personalization. So picking up on that impact theme, Phoebe, how is this impact when it's personalized going to be different from just investing in a normal product, an Article 8-9 fund? So I can give you my response on the difference in the definition between ESG and impact. So for me, ESG, both of these areas come down to data. And Carolina has already mentioned that, and I'm sure we'll talk about that much more over the coffee conversation. But for me, ESG is represented by non-financial data. So if you're looking at valuing a business, traditionally, you look at the company's balance sheet, the revenue projections, but the financial metrics of that business. ESG represents, in some cases, thousands of additional data points that can be categorized under ES with which you can use to value a company and understand not just the financial elements, but what that company's impact is on the planet and the people living within it. So that's used predominantly by financial analysts. And whilst it's possible to personalize on that basis, I think that more sits within the financial element of it and the investment analysis area. When it comes to impact, it's possible to use that data and whether you're using revenue alignment impact or quantification of a company's impact, let's say on water uh, resources or uh, carbon emission data, it's it's more applicable, I would say, to personalize on the impact side of things and have ESG integration as a gift when you're valuing a business. Now, the development of this personalization of impact is happening. It is tricky because of the, the data available. We, like Karina mentioned, use the UN Sustainable Development Goals as the, the basis point of our process to identify opportunities and also use it within client conversation because it's possible to help clients prioritize if they are interested in investing for impact what impact is more important to them than other parts of impact notwithstanding the idea that all of the UN SDGs are so heavily interconnected you cannot achieve one without the other but I would certainly say the personalization trend that we're seeing has come as a result of this focus on impact and the UN SDGs as a basis. For- if we use data to customize it we're using the sort of big tech firms in terms of predicting what outcomes customers want based on the continuous flow of data they receive and amending their products accordingly. How are we going to use those algorithms when an investment horizon is three or five years, people that don't necessarily make choices at the same frequency in the investment world? How do we use that data? Chris, this is a very important point. And Phoebe has made reference to, uh, first of all, the challenges of data. And I think if I had to uh, add to that point, when we're looking at the liquid world, and here that's probably referring to equity and fixed income, it's really a question of estimating the impact that companies have, really the contribution of uh, the output of uh, each company. And so, of course, the first challenge, Chris, is being able to do that. So when we are describing this future, we are at the beginning of this new dimension. And so we need to take everything with a certain caution because the data is being developed As this is happening and providers are starting to estimate the contribution of each of the business model of companies, it allows investors to express their choice. And you're absolutely right. We do not want churning portfolios. But what we are sensing from investors is expressing what matters to them 
is an expression of conviction that is unlikely to change tomorrow. So it's a question of defining the universes that reflect those preferences. I think the challenge from an investment point of view is making sure that those universes are big enough for portfolio managers to add value. So that is really where I think we need to uh, uh, make sure that the availability of data and the definition of the universe is sufficiently strong for adding value. I guess that's the the paradox. If people want to see impact, they want to see a very direct feedback that their money has made a difference. But if you make that too narrow, then you're you're setting yourself up for failure. In terms of the the operating model and the technology you use to deliver that, is that at a high level, what is in place and what are you asking your board to invest in now in order to deliver that for the next stage of personalization? So we've built a proprietary tool within our business that sits actually on my desk that we started developing a few years ago in order to do just that. And we've created the architecture behind this tool to be able to add additional data sets, particularly around impact measurements, in order to increasingly deliver on the personalization point we've been making. I think when it comes to impact and data, for me, it's all about using it as an identification method to identify the companies that are delivering impact from the universe of of liquid stocks that I would select for client portfolios. And then also, as Carolina mentioned, to be able to report on the impact generated. Now, those are two very different challenges and require different data. There's additional data sets coming out all the time. And when you talk about algorithms and, and machine learning and big data, that's some really exciting developments when it comes to measurement and quantification of impact using that sort of information. There's companies out there that look through academic journals to try to ascertain the overall net impact generated by a sector or a geography within a sector, which is exciting, alignment with revenue and SDG alignment with revenue. When it comes to the personalization from a client perspective, it's still all about individual wealth managers and investment managers within our business having those conversations with clients. For the time being, that does need to be a personalized, bespoke conversation. We just need to make sure that the tool that we've built continues to be able to match that client's desires and objectives with a portfolio. Clearly, there are investment restrictions. So there does need to be a recognition of, of what the uh, compromises are from a client's yeah. perspective with regards to return and risk. I think that it's about making sure that I have the resources in order to continue to build out the architecture of the tool to take advantage of those really exciting and fast-moving developments in the space of ESG data. Brilliant. One question that raises, is this something that the industry is going to have to share as a tool? Is this something that we're going to have, have to see the industry collaborating on or there'll be new entrants who just supply this type of data it's a very difficult balancing act isn't it between open architecture and us philosophically wanting to achieve the same thing a better Mm. world and a more sustainable world and backing the businesses that enable us to to deliver on that but also our ip as a business and our intellectual ed so that's a, a sort of philosophical balancing act that we need to square with ourselves we do collaborate with various organizations both charitable and philanthropic and then more around climate transition so PAC is a really good example of that and the partnership for, for, for carbon financials, because we really want to collaborate for, for greater success. Where I see this and the sort of future of ESG data going is getting the data from the businesses themselves and not via a third party data provider necessarily, but utilizing platforms like blockchain platforms where businesses can increasingly invest in an in Internet of Things technology, so sensor mm. technology, and record whether it's factory by factory or location by location, or even within a factory, uh, a machine by machine, the ES&G data. And you can verify, timestamp, 
that data as it transfers through the blockchain. So a business isn't able to edit it, isn't able to inflame it or enhance it, and it can be fed through to in real time me as an investor, but also importantly, the regulator. And I think that will help massively with regards to resource requirements of these businesses that are increasingly encouraged or or required to report on carbon emissions all the way through to diversity, but also the requirement that various different regulatory bodies need this data and accounting standards need this data, as do me as an investor. And if you think about the fact that increasing numbers of companies are looking at putting together carbon footprinting information, which is scannable by a QR code on their product, that is enormously resource intensive. If you can facilitate all of that using, let's say, blockchain technology, it's a much scalable and completely accountable way of reporting. One of the things I want to ask you, Caroline, what do you think the size of the market is for this mass customization? Because on our previous podcast, we had Robin Wigglesworth, who's the global market um, editor or correspondent at the FT. He had maybe a contrarian view that he was slightly sceptical about what the industry could do in terms of sustainable or ESG investing or how much it's maybe over-promising would be a fairer assumption of that. Mass customization. how big do you think that sort of value proposition is? Chris, I think I'm probably a bit biased on, on my answer because I've been very involved in this topic like Phoebe over the last few years. But I definitely feel that if you look at the fund industry with regulation coming out, the SFDR, I would say companies not understanding the sustainability directions. And in here, I'm referring to in SFDR terms to Article 8, you are out of business. And so you would have witnesses that most asset managers had to really transform all the strategies, understand and demonstrate the sustainability components, and uh, most of the flows have been going to that dimensions. And so that is something we absolutely cannot underestimate. And as a matter of fact, coming to this point of impact and personalization, this is what SFDR refers to Article 9. And today, you're absolutely right, there's actually very few Article 9 funds, but when you listen to the demand really coming from talking with private banks that are dealing with individuals, you can see increasingly thematic SDGs is coming through. Now, of course, what you could say to me, could uh, this be manufactured in a more lower cost, passive way once you define the universes? Yes, I would agree with you. There'll be a dimension of low cost, call it passive SDG component that can be easily then into ETFs. And there'll be a version where an active manager can add value on that universes. So I would say I would watch that space because I think it will definitely evolve and it will be a question of definition of universes. Phoebe, where do you stand on that? I'm interested to hear your thoughts. We don't use any ESG ETFs in the portfolios that that we run for clients. I think the market, the ESG ETF marketplace or impact ETF marketplace is evolving very quickly. You see one of two things. You'll see an index, which has got usually an ESG tilt on it. And then obviously the ETF tracking that tilted index for us when we're looking at quantitative data around dsg it's just the starting point and because sustainability is so nuanced and you need to often dig much deeper than just the data that you have available looking at the company supply chains and interaction with them just as one example we think that a qualitative overlay is extremely important you do get some esg etfs where that qualitative overlay has been applied but then you get the challenge where there's no valuation discipline applied. So if all of the companies in that index, and let's say it's a, a sub-theme, gets particularly hot over the course of one quarter, and that could happen from someone influential tweeting about a certain thing, for example, you then end up with a basket of stocks that is at crazy high valuation is therefore vulnerable to 
uh, subsequent crashes. And you do see that happening. And we have seen that happen over the last 24 months, a couple of times. For us, that balance between valuation discipline in the sustainable investment space is extremely important. And the qualitative overlay that you apply to quantitative ESG data when you're assessing whether a company is sustainable enough or not. But we do take that quite purist approach to sustainable investing. In terms, which leads me to one of my um, final questions. Obviously, we've been through some quote unquote interesting times in terms of the pandemic. And also, we're now moving out of a low interest rate environment. In terms of this sort of product, in terms of impact investing, I think both of you have clearly set out a case that this isn't a temporary fad. This isn't a reaction to people feeling guilty in the pandemic or about the environment. It's here to stay. But I'd, when we talk about clients, I think there's different tranches of clients and often on a broad generalisation, but an age demographic. Do we think there's a sort of age difference in terms of who will take up these products? Carolina? Chris, I definitely think that the younger you go, the more the segment is looking for an additional dimension. There is no doubt that just offering the um, risk and returns may be less appealing to the younger generation, even if I would uh, agree with you, it's not to everyone. I don't think that we should look at this dimension of impact as a compromise to risk and performance. Because if we come back to what we were discussing before, uh, which is seeing how regulation, how changes in consumer behaviors are effective impacting investment models, you can also see that constructing portfolios around these themes actually can be associated to return generation. So there's not really a clear decision that they need to make. And we actually know seeing that institutional clients are starting to look for portfolios that are created around thematic dimensions on which, you know, digital and sustainable can be part of it. So I think there's also uh, dimensions where you will notice that themes are starting to dominate risk and returns. And so that is why this is interesting for all age investors uh, and therefore institutional clients are taking notice of that. Phoebe, do you think if returns change in terms of the the low interest rate environment and there's pressure um, to keep those returns up, millennials, Gen Z going to stick with impact investing? Have they got the patience? What do you think? I think it's a bit of a myth that only millennials care about this. I would say my average client age is there is a huge amount of interest from people that are above the millennial age categories because they're thinking about the world around them. They are thinking about the world that they're going to leave behind or they're going to live through. I think that, as Carolina says, there is the, the, the sort of myth that you have to sacrifice return to achieve impact or invest in sustainable businesses. But I think also younger people assume ESG and impacting when you talk to them about the idea that you didn't used to take into consideration how a company behaves in in relation to the environment and the people that it employs and the people that it it, um, interacts with is is actually madness to them that you would only value a business on through one dimension and now that we're increasingly seeing businesses through their impact on the environment and their impact on people and what kind of impact they're going to generate and generate in the future Fantastic. Excellent. I think we could carry on this conversation for a long time, but it really has been fascinating to go through that discussion with you. And I think we've covered a lot of topics, but for me, three key things. Data is key to both understanding preferences, but also understanding impact, because we need to build out that understanding. And that's a journey that's only just beginning. I think we've seen this as a trend, which is, <clears throat> it's been here for a while, but it's, it's set to continue. And customization is key in, in delivering that. It's about building trust uh, with your clients in terms of what you're delivering 
And I guess that sort of final point, qualitative and quantitative um, aspects. So yes, we need those metrics with the financial metrics, but also the metrics around sustainability and how we marry those two together in terms of delivering a, a customized product. So thank you very much for that journey. Before I let you go, obviously, I'm going to need a fun answer to, my, to your city fashion faux pas. Who wants to go first? I'll get mine out of the way. I was presenting once, I think it was in Doncaster in a hotel in front of a pretty large audience and I was wearing very high stilettos and they started to really hurt me so I thought I can either hobble around the stage for a bit longer or I'll actually just take and I'll manage to present just in bare feet in my tights which was all going fine until I realized that the um, projector would have been optimized for me and my heels so when I was trying to point at the the charts on my my slide I couldn't reach them so I had to sort of jump around like some sort of jumping bean and so I'd already look ridiculous taking these heels off in the middle of the presentation and and then it was made very obvious how small I was yeah that's my my fashion folk. fantastic you know how Tom Cruise feels Carolina have you got a story for us I actually Chris I'm going to change my story and stay in the topic of Phoebe on shoes when I started with a new employer and I had to do a presentation in front of the overall uh, team so there was an auditorium that had been booked and there must have been a hundred people and so I walked there and so I was probably dressed and wanted to make my good impressions. I just arrived. And of course, walking there, I put my running shoes. A little, of course, to realize when I got there that I forgot to take <laughs> proper shoes. And so that was seriously embarrassing because I couldn't go on stage with trainers. And so I had to manically have to look around with my new uh, teams who would wear the same size foot to borrow some <laughs> and got there on time. But I have to say that was not my finest, finest time to start uh, with a new team. Brilliant. Carolina, Phoebe, thank you for taking time out again today and showing your fascinating insight into the mass personalization investment and sustainability debate. So thank you very much and goodbye. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and what has, I uh, hope you will agree, been an enlightening conversation from two thought leaders in the industry and will hopefully give you some clarity on what changes are coming in the years ahead. We look forward to grabbing another cup of coffee with you uh, all in the next in our series on the theme of pathway to freedom in the wealth and asset management industry. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us, have any questions, or would even like to be part of our series, please get in touch with us through inquiries at algamy-consulting.com or via LinkedIn Algamy Consulting. Thank you and goodbye.